Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. We need a proper assessment of our risks of climate impact. We saw this summer, while the government is busy downplaying the risk of climate change, we're not prepared for the impact. So as a result, we didn't have in place the kind of, I think, measures that really would have helped, I would hope, help some of the communities that got devastated by the bushfires. So hello, good people of Pods, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host of the show, and I am with Sally Stegall. Good morning. <laughs> Zali, just before we started recording, Zali and I were reminiscing about the first time, actually, that we had a conversation on the podcast, and that was before uh, Zali had won a Warringah. So I think she, well, I certainly feel, I shouldn't project, Zali can speak for herself, I feel like I've lived a million lives since <laughs> since that last conversation. It was about a year. You were one of my first big in-depth interview, actually, as we had launched the campaign yeah. and really thinking ahead and it feels like a lifetime ago yeah. that year, I must say. Yeah, but, exactly, uh, exactly. Well, that's where I want to start. Predominantly, Zali's on the show this week to talk about her private member's bill about climate change. I want to get into that every which way, but I want to start just because that was our origin point, that conversation. I want to start with how things are now and just with an obvious question. So politics. Politics. How's that? Is it as good or as bad as what I thought it was going to <laughs> exactly. be? Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> uh, look, it's really good from the community point of view. I feel we get an amazing amount of support back in Warringah. The feedback I've gotten from an engagement from the electorate has been huge. We did a survey and we had 5,000 people respond. Now that's huge mm, that's just after an election. So I feel like we're really delivering in terms of engaging people in getting them, f- they feel represented, they're having a say. So that part of it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the being able to help around the community, the grants programs and setting up good processes, that's really exciting as well. The parliamentary aspect mm-hmm. is interesting. I still feel like maybe an outsider looking in, you know, coming from a professional background and I'm, I am horrified at some of it because in any other professional context, this would not be acceptable. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because obviously your your professional background, obviously you had an illustrious sporting career, but your professional background is the law. So you're well used to adversarial environments. It's not it's not like you're a shrinking violet. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the court is an adversarial argument and you, you step up to the bar table and you give it your best shot, you know, in a case. But there are rules and there's etiquette. There are procedural aspects that are respected. 
respected and there's a respect for the institution. Mm. As in, you know, barristers and solicitors, we are all officers of the court. So our duty, our primary duty is to the court and the judicial system to ensure proper justice can can be can be done so that you can't you can never elevate the interests of your client above mm. the interests of the system. Mm. And in contrast, here in Parliament, what I see is just, um, look, it's sitting through question time and just a complete disregard for being, I think, truthful and factual is really, really bad. Um, It brings the whole place into disrepute and especially from the Prime Minister and the leadership that he should be showing on this. Uh, The Dorothy Dixes that we get from the coalition ranks are appalling. Mm. There's no... There's no sense of trying to elevate what we do in the chamber to a higher sense of duty and integrity. Mm. And I find that really galling because the Australian people deserve more. And question time is an obvious kind of depressing focal point from, (laughs) you know, obviously. But what else about politics has been either what you expected or different from what you expected? Look, I think the the good things are being able to be a voice for many of the groups. So I get to meet with amazing people doing, trying to do things across medical and civic and social society, environmental groups. Also businesses, small businesses have come and I've made written letters and put propositions to the treasurer and others in relation to try and make a difference. So that aspect is good. And, And our joint committee work is really interesting where a little bit more, uh, you know, MPs do put aside the, maybe the allegiances to have more rational or more, more productive yeah. debate well, discussions. Is, is that still happening? Because it's that used, that certainly used to be the case that some of the partisanship kind of leached out of the processes in committee work. What, what's, what's your judgment about that? Well, look, I'm on the Environment and Energy Committee and I would have to say there's still been a fair bit of partisanship in terms of position, especially when we were looking at the inquiry into lifting the moratorium on nuclear energy. Mm. But there is also opportunity to have more, I think, earnest discussions about policies and issues, but everyone's a little bit hamstrung by party positions. Mm. Well, that neatly gets us to your bill. So let's just not assume people listening to us are across your bill, right? Let's just start with an explanation about what it is and what what you hope to achieve with it. Well, I think an important starting point is the why. We've had 10 years of very divisive politics over climate change. And the irony is this is ultimately the safety of Australia. This is not just an economic or a policy issue that both sides of politics can fight off on. This is ultimately our safety. And we saw that over summer, that we are highly exposed to climate impacts in terms of our safety. Now, We don't see either side debating whether we should have a defence force. (laughs) So I really find it incredibly bad that we're debating whether we should be getting to a safe future, which is net zero by 2050. So when I came into Parliament, I felt like it was a responsibility and a promise I made to Urunga to try and break the impasse. How can we reset on this issue so that we can actually put in place a framework that sets us up for a positive future? So we looked around at what other countries have done and what jurisdictions other jurisdictions have done and overwhelmingly the climate change bill which is modelled on the act that was passed in the UK in 2008 has been replicated around many countries in the world as being a very good framework to set the path for reducing emissions and evolving a country's away from fossil fuels and and high emitting technologies in a measurable, sensible, gradual way that allows you to take 
the opportunities. So the bill sets up a few key aspects. It locks in a net zero by 2050, which should not be controversial. And in fact, I think the ex-Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was saying only yesterday at a conference that it's really misleading to say that we have any choice but for that. Mm. If we have signed on to the climate, as, as a signatory of the Paris Agreement, we have signed on to keep world temperatures under two degrees as close to 1.5. That requires a net zero by 2050. I think coalition are being a bit cute at the moment because they're actually saying, well, it says net zero by mid uh, second half, second of, the half cent- of the century. Second half of the century. And, and, and the, so, world, the world has to do it, which is and, and, apparently which, we're not members of the world. Exactly. And the big question is, well, what exactly does that mean? Is, that, <laughs> is your goal 2070, 2080? Mm. Let, let's be frank about what you're really thinking. So the Act locks that in. And then it, it's important if you're going to lock in a long-term plan how do you get there? We don't have all the answers now as to technology of the future, but you also have a lot of the technology already. But we need to have a plan on how to implement it. So the Act provides for five-year emission reduction budget so that we can sensibly get there. I always do the analogy of if you decide you want to run a marathon, mm. you don't just set out and run 42 Ks. You first set out you set out your goal and then you set out your training program of how you're going to gradually increase your fitness to be able to get to the goal. We need to do the same thing. We just need to do it in a sensible way. So the Act sets up those emission budgets and then the minister and the government is to put a plan in place to how to reach those budgets and it's address the risk. A big part of the Act is also that we need a proper assessment of our risks of climate impact. Mm. We saw this summer, while the government is busy downplaying the risk of climate change, we're not prepared for the impact. So as a result, we didn't have in place the kind of, I think, measures that really would have helped, I would hope, help some of the communities that got devastated by the bushfires. So we need to have a very clear assessment of our risks Mm. and plans to adapt to those risks, to manage them and to mitigate them. So there's, there's nothing... Nothing should be controversial about this bill. It's as down the middle sensible as you can possibly do it. Mm. And that was on purpose so that it could be bipartisan and so people could actually move forward with a plan on climate. Let me um, put to you, there's obviously, there has been some criticism around from a couple of Liberals recently, Jason Falinski and Tim Wilson, but I'm going to set that to one side for a minute because we can talk about the politics of all of this in a tick. But uh, I've read the bill myself and, and it is as you describe, it's a, it's a rational measured framework. However, one thing that the bill does do that is different, a bit different in the Australian system is to balance decision-making authority between a responsible minister and an independent authority that opens the bill to arguments and let's just leave Tim and Jason to one side. But I'm just saying... It, but not the, it's not the decision-making. It advises. So the Independent Climate Change Commission, based on the UK model, is made up of experts across many fields from climate science to business to the economy to industry to regional development. Yeah. They assess the risk of how we are exposed across all our uh, sectors from health and education, transport, agriculture, energy, and they make recommendations to the government. The government then is fully empowered to implement a plan that they have costed, that they have decided is the way to deliver results. If they depart from recommendations, they have to explain why. And then what the commission does is it reports on how well the government is delivering. So all the commission does is A, inform the Australian public 
public of where we're exposed and B, holds the government to account on how it's delivering. Oh, look, and don't get me wrong. So- <laughs> I think actually bringing, you know, the idea, and perhaps we'll talk about this in a sec, the idea of uh, trying to break a political deadlock by pulling some of the well, pulling some of the um, deliberation out of the bear pit, right, is very sensible based on where we've been. However, just think about the concept, right, like sending net zero in your bill, if I've read it correctly, right, you've got to do net zero. The minister has a discretion to vary net zero, but not reduce the commitment. No, no. The, the, so the bill provides for we've set that long-term goal of net zero by 2050. It can be amended if, for example, the Commission was to recommend that the science has dramatically changed, that global warming has increased at a much higher rate, yep. um, or, and that we dramatically we're in a need, global recession, we or, need to accelerate. Yeah. What the the minister does is they the government sets the five year budgets that ultimately get us to that twenty fifty. So the government is in the driver's seat to decide. For the first five years, it will be a very slow. For the next five, a little bit more. For the next five, a little bit more. Maybe for the first five years, there will be a high focus on energy production. In the second five-year budget, there may be a much higher focus on transport, a more ambitious electric vehicle policy. In the third five-year budget, it might be, right, well, we've got energy and transport under control. Let's now really focus on industry and agriculture. It allows for a transition that's done yeah. in a measured way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely allows for discretion. I'm not saying that the minister is unimportant in this scheme. The minister is quite important in this scheme. And it would also be a ludicrous conversation between you and I if I were to be arguing that that we shouldn't aim for net zero because obviously (laughs) we should because that's what the science tells us is the safe, well, hopefully a safe threshold, right? But it's just, I suppose the example I have in my mind, and this is why I chucked global recession at you a minute ago, is let's say, God forbid, this framework was adopted in 10 years' time, there is a massive global recession. I don't know what the trigger Mm -hmm. for it is, but let's just say there is. And we have a piece of legislation, just sticking with the net zero target for a moment, that basically says the minister can can adjust net zero but not downwards, like you can't wind back the commitment. So, I mean, I guess the answer is you'd change the law. No, no, no. What you change is the five-year budget. Yes, So the whole point is within a year of enacting this bill, um, the government has to set in place a first five-year budget and then the second five years. So from a business point of view, that gives them visibility over the next 10 years and then very quickly is the third five-year tranche that has to start to be put into place. So what you have is very clear visibility for the next 15 years. Now, if after the first five-year budget, as you say, a major something happens and and circumstances have changed, then yes, then those five-year budgets get the five-year emission reduction budgets get adjusted. Mm. And so, for example, if the focus had been on one sector of the economy, it might all of a sudden have to shift to something else Mm. or we might have developments in technology or other things have happened at a better rate. So where there is flexibility is in how the plan is mapped out, just like if you're training for a marathon. Yeah. And, and you, you sprain and your ankle. You sprain your ankle and for two weeks you can't train. Mm. That's okay. Mm. It just means that when you get back to training, you might have to adjust the intensity of the training that you do to still get to your long, long-term goal. Yeah, okay. And that's why it's so important to have a framework because at the moment we have a commitment to 2030, which highly debatable that we'll get there. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, you know, as much as we keep hearing that there's a plan from oh. the government, mm. there are so many holes in that yeah. plan, it's ridiculous. Yeah. 
business is saying, sorry, but that plan's not good enough because we don't know what happens after it. Mm. Um, we need longer stability. We need policy certainty of where we need to go. Everyone is saying that, that we need more than what the government's currently put on the table. Mm. So <laughs> it's, it's sort of it, – the, the funny part is – my discussions, and I, I can guarantee you that the high majority of people in this place agree that we need to be at net zero by 2050. Mm. But what it comes down to is political positioning, personal interest, mm. I believe, personal interest within parties that they're not courageous or brave enough to actually fight for that goal or they want to play political games. They're still more interested in beating the other side than they are the long-term future and safety of Australia. Do you think that that's what it comes down to? I mean, basically with the coalition, obviously they've developed a formula over the last few elections of trying to neutralise climate change in areas where that's advantageous to do so, like in electorates like yours, although it didn't work in yours. And I suspect it won't work in the future. <laughs> well, well, we'll get to this. But but that's been their formula, neutralise in the, in the metropolitan electorates, weaponise in the regions. Yep. And I suppose from just picking up what you just said, that the government is prioritising election mud maps over where the country needs to be. I mean, that I'm strongly of that view. I say that every five minutes. But <laughs> but what my question to you is then what what triggers them to change? If because from their perspective, I mean, set aside the health of the country and the planet, right? Let's just put that to one side because that's what the Australian political system has done yeah. for the best part of a decade. Yeah, yeah. Right? So let's just put that there, right? Sitting before Scott Morrison is a pathway to victory. Mm. Right? On this formula, neutralise, weaponise. Well, how, how do you get him to change? Well, I think the days of that pathway are over because I think what we saw over this summer was climate impacts are now. They're here. They're not this arbitrary thing that's going to happen in the next 10 years and, oh, we'll be able to deal with it then. It's something that is actually happening now. Cost of insurance premiums are going up. We have investment that is stalling when it comes to renewables and, and developments. We have technology going overseas because there simply isn't the right environment in Australia to encourage it, that investment. We have regional centres that are absolutely just struggling. I mean, I, it's just hard to explain how hard they're doing it in terms of drought. Agriculture is is struggling. They're simply, this is not progressing in any kind of direction. So I strongly believe it is happening. It's here and now. I think at the last election, there were too many messages and it was all still kind of mixed up in terms of climate. What was interesting about the last election, though, is that the primary vote from both major parties continues to go down. Mm. So mm. they are clearly not appealing to the current voters, well, appealing less and less, and I would argue that is going to continue to slide. Do you think that seats, uh, you obviously won Warringi, that, and do you think that, I mean, obviously Tony Abbott's a factor in that, but do you think you won that seat because of climate change? Uh, no, not just because of climate change. I think because of the electorate wanted to be better represented. It wanted to have the sort of more issues. I think, again, you know, the next election will tell what Warringah thinks of the job I've done yep. on their behalf for these three years. And I'm okay with that because that's exactly how it should be. For me, it's been a really big goal to pull back the curtain on Canberra and bring Warringah to Canberra and a bit more of Canberra back to Warringah so everyone knows what's going on. 
So, look, the the motivate the factors in the last election, especially in Warringah, I think there was that sense that it was time to move on. Mm. Um, there was that I think there was an acceptance that I represented the views of Warringah better than what. Tony Abbott was. And so I'll be judged on that, whether I do that effectively or not. Mm. But I think what's really interesting is just that growing sense of unease that the coalition, despite knowing what it should do, and I firmly believe they know what they should be doing. They mm. do accept they need to be at net zero by 2050. Mm. They're playing games with it. They're not prepared to be frank. They're not prepared to take the hard decisions and put in place a plan. I think they're misleading a lot of regional communities because by saying to them, let's look at a new coal-fired power station and let's extend the life of, of these things, you're not putting in place a plan that's going to help these communities. You're just setting them up for in five years' time or 10 years' time when those industries close, because they will, they will be left with no plan B. Mm. Just practical things about the bill now. Have you spoken to the government or to Labor about, because you will need major party support somewhere in order for, for this to even make the floor of the parliament. Where's that up to? Oh, absolutely. I've spoken with the Prime Minister. I've spoken with the Treasurer. I've spoken with ministers. I've spoken with the opposition and the crossbench. I've spoken with senators. I think where we're at now is playing politics. I think in terms of everybody, I think from the coalition's point of view, they're more caught up in they're very focused on wanting to win back Warringah. Mm. So they would certainly not want to be supportive of a plan that could show that an independent is effective. So that is part of, I think, their motivation. But what they do need to really remember is it's not just about trying to worry about Warringah. It's actually worry about the five or six other seats in 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 cities, in urban environments where people are, have had enough of the political games and they actually want action on climate change. Well, interestingly, I had Trent Zimmerman on the show last week and he said to me over the course of the conversation, he was going to have a conversation with you about the bill. Yeah. Has that happened? Uh, that's booked in, I believe, today or tomorrow. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, we've recorded this at the wrong time, haven't we? Anyway, well, that, that'll be interesting to see to see how that conversation goes. He's obviously your neighbour. Now, are you prepared to have your bill amended in order to bring it onto the floor of the parliament? Now, we're both getting ahead of ourselves here, but it sort of comes back to that point about how much discretion ministers have in decision making, because in politics as usual, which is what this place is, that is a very high threshold for elected representatives to get over, that they actually, that there is an institutional check on their discretion, right? Yeah. And we've talked through yeah. the nuances there, but, but that's how they will perceive yeah. it. There is also, I mean, you know, a lot of that is just brutal politics. In fairness to them, I suppose the rationale for why ministers are the decision makers without co-hosts or parliamentarians is that they are elected by Australians. And if we think they're shit, excuse my French, we can vote them out. But absolutely. And that's exactly what this bill supports because it supports that the minister makes a decision, but the Australian people are informed as to the truth of whether or not they're performing. Yes, we we actually have experts Um, in the system. But the point is, in order to get the bill onto the floor, 
are you prepared to countenance amendments to it in the event anybody wants to amend it? Of course. I'm more than welcome for, for government to take it, make it their own, but put in place the plan and that long-term goal that Australia needs. I, I have absolutely invited them to do that. I know the difficulties of a private member's bill, but we have to start this conversation. We have to reset on this policy area, and that is what I can offer as an independent is I can put that solution on the table. They then have a responsibility to take that solution. And if they need to mould it or amend it, uh, put forward things, that we've seen that with the Integrity Commission, for example, proposal, but we're still two years on and we still don't see mm, the proposal from the government. Yeah. So I do put it strongly for to the, to the Australian people that – This actually has to come from the Australian people. Just as in the UK, it was a people campaign that got it there for bipartisan support. In Australia, it needs to be the same. The political parties are focused on playing games with your future. So it is up to the Australian people to decide, here is your opportunity. That's why we've had the business community, we've had uh, insurance, we've had industry group, we've got um, medical, we've got regulators, we've got civic society, we've got religious groups, education groups. environmental groups, all supporting this. It is up to the people, I believe, to take over this debate. And it's why I'm calling on the government, have a plebiscite on this. If you don't think you have a mandate, have a plebiscite. Put it to the Australian people what they want. Do they want a long-term environmentally safe Australia? Mm. Put that in a plebiscite to the Australian people because I'm pretty confident the answer will be overwhelmingly yes. Do you – I'm sort of curious – I'm curious about this phenomenon and we saw it again in our Guardian Essential poll this this week where there's been uh, – there is a very strong majority in the Australian community for a net zero position and there's also been well, like a 12-point movement in in coalition voters in the sample over uh, – in a month. Like and that's sort of I suppose in the backwash of the bushfires. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't even know if that's a sentence, but you know what I mean. So my issue, Zali, though, is that I have seen polls like that for really two years, really mm-hmm. since the drought mm-hmm. kind of bit, yep. right? So Australians are saying they want climate action, but at the end of the day, they're not voting for it. So, well, I I, I probably disagree there. What they the problem is I think about forty eight or forty nine percent of the population are voting for it. Right, they they are, and then of the other fifty-one percent, I think you have about thirty percent who are extremely concerned with climate change, but it hasn't been. They haven't felt like it's the most urgent thing they need to worry about, and they've been concerned with other issues first. So it hasn't been the driver of their vote. And then I believe there's probably about twenty percent that there's nothing we're going to say that's ever going to convince them. So you kind of have to park them to another side. But I do believe that thirty percent, which I think are overwhelmingly the people that supported me that are in that sort of centre, that want a sensible plan, they aren't, they don't respond to the more dire warnings or the more ex- uh, extreme plans that have been put forward, but they want a sensible plan to move forward. And I think they are the people that have changed. We, we get contacted by so many groups like the, got the Quiet Australians that have risen up in Wentworth. What? Dave, Dave Sharma's electorate. Uh, and they are Quiet Australians. They are retired lawyers and not your 
your act lefty activists. There's yeah. nothing. Okay. But they are out there campaigning for a sensible plan. Is this a group um, called, absolutely. called the look Quiet Australians? Oh, my God, I'll have to look these There's people up. Quiet Australians for Climate Action. Right. And they are, I would argue, part of that 30% who have now saying enough. We've had enough of the fighting about this and we actually want a sensible pl- pathway forward. And do you think, uh, well, we, well, I mean, I could talk to you for hours really, but we do have to wrap up in a tick. Do you think that cohort that you're talking about, you say they're, you didn't use as strong a word as repelled, but you said they're a bit put back by some of the extreme language or extreme positions or whatever else, right? They're looking for something that they view as sensible and et cetera. So your own, I'm interested in your own experience in Warringah because like in Liberal Party branch meetings in metropolitan Sydney, that would be similar to yep. a, a yep. Warringah meeting. You do get a range of views, like MPs like Jason Falensky or Trent or, or Tim in Melbourne or Trevor Evans in Brisbane or, you know, whatever, take your pick. In their branch meetings, they would get a bunch of people saying, you people are complete numpties on climate change and I may have to vote Green or Zali mm-hmm. Stegall or something else. You would also have a cohort of liberals in, in mm-hmm. traditional base who would view climate action as some sort of dreadful shop front for progressivism that needs yep. to be resisted at Social all costs. Ana- Socialist Social anarchy. anarchy. <laughs> well, and the death of capitalism and, you know, and, and some of these, of course, you know, some some people on the left don't actually help by screaming about the death of capitalism, exactly. for example, right? Not, not that helpful. Anyway, putting that to one side, you deal with the full spectrum of people in your electorate. Yep. Do you think things are shifting? Well, I, I do. I look at an electorate like Warringah. We have an over. Uh, again, I go back to our survey. Eighty percent of the people that responded responded that their primary concern was climate change, environment, wastes, and plastics, and water management. So all environmental issues for the future. And I think that is very similar to other electorates. I, I don't think that's an unusual situation. I have a lot of people that contact me and that are now supporters and that you know part of the the team who were maybe not traditionally as concerned about climate change in the past. You know, a lot of people who have come to this concern in the last, some of them within this year, some within three years, five years, where they've just gradually felt that actually this is the number one concern that we need to address. But from many, many factors, it is a highly professional electorate. And so there's a lot of people who appreciate and traditional, absolutely traditionally liberal voters who absolutely think our capitalist future, mm. if we put aside the environmental argument, yeah. our capitalist future is to get is to evolve and take advantage of these technologies and to have a plan to get there and to provide certainty. So they are at a loss of uh, to understand why a liberal government doesn't even sort of embrace the capitalist opportunities that there are in evolving to a low emission economy. Mm. So the irony is that there is a huge amount of people who now want to see that plan to evolve all our sectors away from fossil fuels on a purely capitalist argument, Mm. let alone the environmental and safety argument. Mm. So... And I think that is a shift because we you've got to talk about the numbers. I mean, something that I find incredible is, uh, you know, it was a very – it wasn't incredible because it was to be expected, the response, that when Labor came out to say, look, well, if we're going to respect the Paris Agreement, we really need to accept that it's net zero by 2050 – 
you know, God forbid, we have state governments in coalition and labour that have committed to that. We have countries around the world, business sector, industry, everybody except that's where we're heading. But so the, the immediate question is, well, what's you haven't costed it. And we have to ask this question of the Prime Minister and this government. They are in government. So what costings have they done? What modelling have they done of a three-degree world? Mm. Because if they are saying it is too expensive to try and prevent that, then they need to tell us what it's going to cost in jobs and the economy to be at three degrees Mm. because the numbers are frightening. Mm. Um, We've seen the University of Melbourne have come out with some modelling already and it's essentially a 20 to 1, that it will be 20 times more expensive in jobs and to the economy to get to be at three degrees of warming than it would to have tried to prevent mm, it. Mm, exactly. And that's not well ventilated in the debate, despite best efforts anyway. Sadly, we've got to wrap it up. Thank you, everybody, uh, so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. If you are looking for information about Zali's bill, it is very easy to track down on the internet. I think if Professor Google can help you out with that, you can, by all means. But, yes. uh, please go to climateactnow.com.au and register your support. We're trying to pull the curtain back and provide as much information as possible, but also also provide information of support. So what, I don't know if all journalists have noticed, but we actually have, it's like a plebiscite where people can register their support per electorate. You can write to your MPs. And I have had a lot of MPs tell me that their inbox Mm. is full. Mm. But what you also can see is who's supporting it where. So there's a breakdown per state, nationally and internationally, and then per electorate. So you can really see who is galvanising. So no MP can come to an interview and say, no one's written to me about this issue. There's no issue about climate change in my electorate. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so all those stats are readily available and you, and anyway, it is, it is fascinating. Go and have a look if you haven't already. Thank you, as always, to my executive producer, Miles Martignoni, for sterling services to pods. Thanks to Zali for a great conversation. Parliament rolls on as it does. We'll be back very soon. Thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.